This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some important issues related to vaccines and people who are immunosuppressed, interleukin-6 inhibitors, and mucormycosis. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor and GP, and Emma Scott, Section Editor, who both work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Abby and vaccines. Abby, further trials of vaccine immunogenicity in immunosuppressed populations have been published. Can you tell us about the results in patients with cancer? Yes, we've got results now from a prospective study um, conducted in Israel, which looked at the immunogenicity of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And they looked at patients with solid organ tumours who were receiving systemic anti-cancer therapy. So patients had a range of tumours, but the majority had gastrointestinal, genitourinary, lung or breast cancers, and about 75% of them had metastatic disease. Patients were either receiving chemotherapy, biological agents or immunotherapy, and some patients were receiving more than one class of treatment. So what they found is after the first dose of vaccine, 29% of the patients receiving systemic anti-cancer therapy were seropositive um, for coronavirus antibodies, compared with 84% of controls. But after the second dose of the vaccine, 86% of the patients receiving the systemic anti-cancer therapy became seropositive for coronavirus antibodies. So it seems that in this population, they can achieve quite good um, immunological response, but they definitely need two doses based on the findings of this study. And it was useful to know that the vaccine wasn't associated with any more adverse events in people receiving systemic anti-cancer therapy compared with people who weren't. Okay, thank you. And there was another study recently published on hematological malignancies. Can you tell us about that one? Um, Yes, this was another prospective cohort study um, looking at vaccine immunogenicity in patients aged 18 to 60 years with haematological malignancies. So the researchers compared the anti-spike protein 1 antibody titers in people with haematological malignancy compared with healthcare worker controls, again after two doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. And they found that the patients with haematological malignancies had significantly lower median antibody titers after two vaccine doses than healthcare workers in the same age group. And they were also able to dig a little deeper into this data. So they found that compared with untreated patients with haematological malignancy, patients who were actively being treated with bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors, ruxolitinib, venetoclax or anti-CD20 antibody therapy show particularly poor antibody responses um, for COVID following the two doses of vaccine. And they found that the patients being treated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors or who received autologous or allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplants were among the subgroups with the highest antibody titer responses. 
Okay, thank you. And what about in other immunosuppressed populations? So some studies have been published of the effect of vaccines in kidney transplant recipients. Um, So in two studies, between 33% and 54% of kidney transplant recipients developed antibodies against coronavirus after two doses of an mRNA vaccine. Um, And amongst the patients who did develop antibodies, antibody titers were lower um, when compared with immunocompetent controls. And looking at the application of this Um, to clinical outcomes, there's been a cohort study of people with cirrhosis, and that found that using the COVID-19 mRNA vaccines was associated with a reduction in COVID-19 infection and a reduction in hospitalization or death from COVID-19 after 28 days. Okay, thank you. And let's move on to a completely different subject, which is about anticoagulation during the pandemic. And there's been some safety warnings about this. Can can you tell us about those? Yes, there's been a safety warning issued in the UK regarding anticoagulation for patients with mechanical heart valves. And this follows several case reports of valve thrombosis requiring emergency surgery and a case of severe anemia. Um, which have been reported in patients with mechanical heart valves whose anticoagulation was inappropriately switched during the pandemic. So the safety warning reminds us that patients with mechanical heart valves require lifelong treatment with a vitamin K antagonist. So in practice, that's usually warfarin. And they mustn't be switched to the direct oral anticoagulants or to low molecular weight heparin. And let's move on uh, to direct management of COVID-19. Tell us about the most recent guidelines on interleukin-6 inhibitors. Well, the WHO Living Guideline on Therapeutics for COVID-19 has been updated now with an additional recommendation. So now use of an IL-6 inhibitor is strongly recommended in patients with severe or critical COVID-19. And tocilizumab and sarilumab appear to have similar efficacy. Either can be used. And the IL-6 inhibitors should be used in addition to standard care, including corticosteroids in this patient group. And it should be started at the same time. Okay, thank you. And important reminder, how do we define severe COVID? Yeah, good question. Um, So severe COVID is defined by any of oxygen saturations below 90% on room air a respiratory rate of more than 30 breaths per minute in adults, or signs of respiratory distress. So those might be needing to use accessory muscles or not able to complete a full sentence. And critical COVID-19 is diagnosed if patients have acute respiratory distress syndrome, sepsis or septic shock, or otherwise require mechanical ventilation or vasopressors. So the recommendation to start using IL-6 inhibitors follows publication of a systematic review. Um, And that review included data from the recovery and the REMAP-CAP trials. And they found there was high quality evidence that adding IL-6 inhibitors to standard care reduced mortality and the need for mechanical ventilation. So the estimated absolute reduction in mortality is 16 per 1,000 people treated. And the estimated absolute reduction in mechanical ventilation is 23 per 1,000 people. And the benefit of IL-6 inhibitors occurs regardless of the level of respiratory support the patient needs. um, And it's in addition to the benefit from treatment with corticosteroids. 
Okay, thank you. And and lastly, what about the risks of these drugs? Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that patients taking IL-6 inhibitors are at increased risk of infection. And that includes active tuberculosis, invasive fungal infections, and opportunistic pathogens as well. So routine blood work, including checking um, neutrophils, platelets, transaminases, total bilirubin, um, is recommended before initiating therapy. And while patients are taking IL-6 inhibitors, they need to be monitored for any signs or symptoms of infection because there's an increased immunosuppression in addition to using the systemic steroids. And at the moment, because of that infection risk, these drugs are avoided in patients who are significantly immunocompromised. Okay, thanks, Abby. That's very helpful and comprehensive. Uh, Let's move on to Emma now. Uh, Emma, can you tell us about mucormycosis? Yes, uh, mucormycosis um, is a potentially fatal but usually rare um, fungal infection that has been increasingly reported in patients with COVID-19. There's been a significant increase in mucormycosis, which is also known as black fungus, um, in India since the start of their second COVID-19 wave. Um, It's most commonly being seen in COVID-19 patients who also have diabetes, especially uncontrolled diabetes, and who have also received corticosteroids, so they may be immunosuppressed. Studies are ongoing, but early systematic reviews have reported that COVID-19-related mucormycosis has a mortality rate of around 30%. Last week, it was reported that India had recorded over 45,000 cases and 4,300 deaths. How do you recognise mucormycosis? Early diagnosis and prompt therapy are essential for favourable outcomes and clinicians are advised to have a low threshold of suspicion for mucormycosis in patients with COVID-19. There are different manifestations, but the most common are rhinocerebral infection and pulmonary infection. Fungal hyphae invade blood vessels, which causes thrombosis and tissue necrosis. And warning signs and symptoms to look out for include nasal congestion, blackish or bloody nasal discharge, sinus pain, facial pain, toothache or loosening of the teeth, um, vision disturbances, hemoptysis or necrotic eschar on the skin, palate or nasal turbinates. Appropriate tests and investigations should be started without delay. Okay, thank you. And and, and lastly, how is it treated? It's treated with a a combination of surgery and antifungal therapy. Uh, Extensive surgical debridement is done um, where feasible to remove necrotic tissue and stop um, spread of infection. And prompt antifungal therapy is also started. Other management strategies in the context of COVID would include controlling hyperglycemia, diabetes or diabetic ketoacidosis, reducing corticosteroid dose with the aim to rapidly discontinue them and also discontinuing any immunomodulating drugs. Okay, thank you very much, Emma and Abby. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice to look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.